You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this very important podcast episode to talk about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on children with blood cancers. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a life-changing event and ongoing process for all of us, both in adult medicine, adult oncology, GYN, oncology, pediatric oncology, and it continues to have a major impact on our daily lives, but also on our caring for patients. We have talked with several experts on the adult side, caring for adult patients with cancer, with COVID infections, and we felt it was important to also talk in detail about the effect of COVID-19 on caring for children with blood cancers. To do this, today we're going to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Levine, who's an Associate Professor of Clinical Pediatrics in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York, and Dr. Maria Luisa Sulis, who is a physician attending and member at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in the Department of Pediatrics in New York. Jennifer, Maria, Luisa, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for inviting us. So, so I want to start out, obviously we're going to be talking about COVID-19, but I wanted to even step back a little bit further. And, you know, some of the people listening are like myself. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist. We're on the medical oncology side of things. So let me ask you more broadly, for children with blood cancers, in general, how common and how significant uh, a clinical factor are viral infections. This is Jennifer. I think that we definitely see viral infections in our patient population. They're exposed in similar ways to other, you know, children in terms of, you know, having siblings at home and I mean kids in most instances are real uh, carriers of viruses. And so the, the impact of viruses can, can be significant in a number of different ways in our patient population. One is obviously that kids can, in fact, get sick from them and need hospitalization for that. But it also always presents a little bit sometimes of a conundrum if, you know, viruses give you fevers and other things that make us worry about other kinds of infections as well. So we think a lot about viruses. We test a lot for viruses. And sometimes even with the other sets of viruses can really impact the care that we are giving to these kids. Although I think in oncology, as opposed to really the transplant population, which of course, you know, is necessary for hematologic malignancies, most kids do fairly well in the setting of viral infections. I want to ask, again, a very basic question, maybe a difficult one or maybe an easy one, about immunity. In your children who are being treated for blood cancers, what would you consider to be their immunosuppression? What are the key elements of that? Because my impression is it's not just one thing, it's probably several deficiencies. So I think it depends somewhat on what kind of uh, disease we're talking about. 
there is certainly an, uh, a level of immunodepression that is related to the cancer itself uh, that manifests at the time of, uh, of a presentation, and that is one of the reasons why some patients can, for example, have significant infection even at the presentation, particularly, for example, children with uh, AML. And then there is the immunosuppression that is uh, um, related to therapy, for which it usually lasts for the entire period of chemotherapy, and it usually takes some time after the end of chemotherapy to, um, to recover. Now, this, uh, as Jennifer was saying, also, despite this immunosuppression, once the children are affected by viral, the different viruses and viral illnesses in general, they don't tend to become very, very sick. But clearly, uh, anyone with a virus, even an influenza or an RSV, especially in the little ones, uh, for us still deserve a higher level of attention than the uh, general uh, population. And for this reason, uh, even importantly, we uh, always recommend, for example, that when the winter comes, all children be uh, vaccinated with the influenza. So the exact uh, depth of um, immunosuppression is, uh, depends on the therapy and the disease. Uh, and I would say, for example, for children with ALL who have, uh, even if they're in remission and they've been in remission for a while, they are frequently exposed to uh, corticosteroids and pretty good doses of corticosteroids. And so we always consider them uh, uh, immunosuppressed to a certain, uh, certain level in terms of lymphocyte function. Let me ask both of you, what's the spectrum of uh, COVID-19 infections that you've been seeing in children? And, you know, I'd be, I'd be particularly interested if, you, if you're able to share. Uh, each of us have been faced by sort of our first patient uh, presenting with COVID-19. And I'd love to hear about sort of your experiences uh, with your first patient and then, you know, subsequently in the last few months. Uh, Jennifer? I guess in general what I would say is, Overall, the numbers of, of patients who are testing positive for COVID-19 is, is low, but I have uh, one patient who, who definitely sort of had an interesting presentation. It was a, a toddler being treated for AML and had received pretty significant chemotherapy that caused a significant depression of his counts, and he developed a fever, which is quite common. And so normally sort of develop a fever, and that prompts us to start doing a workup looking for various types of infection. And he was on antibiotics, and his fever persisted. And so as part of our workup, he ultimately got A, tested for COVID-19, and then also had a, a CT scan of his chest. And he did test positive. And what was quite remarkable is that he had abnormalities on his chest CT that far exceeded in severity his clinical presentation, and it was really quite impressive. So he really had been febrile. He had required a couple of boluses in terms of fluids, but didn't really require much more, did not really have very significant respiratory symptoms, and yet his chest CT scan really showed in the setting of a positive COVID-19 test really extensive disease. And I think that that is perhaps one example of a patient of one type of setting that we're seeing where this whole question of immunosuppression really comes up, which is just, you know, did the virus cause damage in his lung parenchyma, but because he was immunosuppressed, that he didn't mm -hmm. subsequently manifest, you know, some of these extreme inflammatory responses that I think have been being seen in other patient populations. We didn't actually know about that syndrome when he presented, but again, this real difference between discordance between 
radiographically in his clinical presentation mm-hmm. was, I think, explained perhaps by his um, immunosuppression. Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, thought that the immunosuppression, in a sense, may have been protective. Yeah. Yeah. Maria Luisa, how about your, I'd be interested in your, again, your experience clinically. Yeah, so, so the first patient that we had uh, that came with uh, respiratory distress was um, a 10-year-old boy who had, uh, was quite sick for his, from his only illness. So with the second relapse of acute myeloid leukemia, post-transplant, uh, and uh, clearly, and then presented with the increased oxygen requirement, new uh, onset and increasing oxygen requirement. And as Jennifer said, also his uh, imaging was uh, quite somewhat disconnected uh, from the clinical picture. Yes, he was uh, in some distress and required oxygen, but the uh, CT scan was absolutely more striking. Now, despite his overall um, uh, oncologic condition, he actually managed to do quite well with this infection. And yes, he had a prolonged uh, hospitalization because of a supportive care, but ultimately he did very well and he came off oxygen and he was able to, to go home. In the second one, there was uh, sick, and really, actually, the only two that uh, were sick among the children who were uh, positive uh, and symptomatic was a, a teenager who actually went to the emergency room because of the complaint of uh, shortness of breath. And in fact, the imaging showed a clear-cut pneumonia. She tested positive, but then in the workup, actually, for this respiratory stress is when the um, new diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia was made. She needed intensive care support, uh, respiratory support, but again, another one that uh, over uh, a week was able to actually go back to home air and uh, regain uh, function. And similar to what Jennifer said, again, the discrepancy between uh, what the imaging says and what the actual patient shows. So you see images that are quite extensive uh, um, in terms of parenchymal lung involvement, but yet the uh, oxygen requirement itself for the level of hypoxia is not as uh, significant as the imaging would suggest. And thankfully, both children did well. Unfortunately, that was not the case for other children we heard uh, from in other institutions. But overall, uh, at least my experience has actually been quite mild um, overall compared to what we were expecting. You know, let me ask you, related to that experience, so as you see children now, let's say who are positive for COVID-19 infection, how is that piece of information being used in terms of your decision-making? Would you modify therapy? Would you uh, delay therapy? I'm sure it's disease-related, but I'm interested in your sort of broader view of that. I think that that question really speaks a lot to the way that the community is is sort of grappling with what is the right thing to do and, and what information are we using to make those decisions. Because I think overall, again, the, the numbers are, are quite small. Obviously, in New York, I think there, there really have been large numbers. I think at the onset, in an effort to be, you know, conservative, that in the setting of a positive COVID test, there was a plan and there were instances of really delaying therapy. And when people thought about for how long, you know, two weeks was, I think, seemed reasonable to people in terms of the amount of time in which we'd anticipate clinical symptoms to manifest. But, uh, you know, a couple things related to that. One is I think that because in general we are seeing that, that children are, are doing so well that for, for chemotherapy, I think we do feel that that maybe there are not necessarily uh, requirements for delay in treatment. Part of that certainly is trying to balance 
the need at the moment for chemotherapy or other radiation treatments in terms of disease control versus our concerns about what the children will look like clinically from COVID. So I think there have been some changes there. I think that we don't have a lot of great data to help us understand what exactly the right answer is in that situation. I do think one thing we have done is if someone is COVID-19 positive, or, or really I guess I should say that their PCR is positive, that they don't necessarily have the disease, we're not really doing um, procedures on that date. I think there's certainly concerns about mm-hmm. exposing a child to anesthesia when we're not so clear about what their respiratory status might be. The other thing that I think has been a sort of conundrum for us is that, and this is not so infrequent in the patient population either, is that they shed virus for a long time. And so at that point, you really have to make a decision about what a positive test means. And again, we're, we're really constantly balancing, you know, a desire not to interrupt therapy, which I think overall has been you know, the direction that people have been moving in, um, even if there's a very short break, just to kind of understand which direction are we heading in. Yeah, so I really do to reiterate what Jennifer said and add something. So I think it's actually very interesting if you think back to where we were in mid-March when we were all told uh, um, starting next week that you know, your clinic schedule will change and uh, and you have to think of the approach of this patient to this patient. We knew from the European colleagues that uh, um, children with hematologic disorder were not really experiencing significant or severe um, illnesses. It certainly was not at the level of the adults, but clearly that was not sufficient to allow us to just continue management as as usual. And so initially there was even a thought of uh, should we set some policies, protocols on how to manage these children. And it became clear right away that it was it was not going to be a rule that applies to, to all and really needed to be patient by patient. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was a struggle a little bit because uh, there was a concern that uh, people, the families, would be reluctant to come to the hospital because of they were afraid of, uh, of the disease. And for example, certainly we saw a decrease in the number of consultations that we did. And balancing that with uh, the importance that we know, all know, if you have someone who's newly diagnosed, you, you really need to get the workup that uh, is uh, the best workup to consider today so that you have all the information to implement the right therapy. So there were different scenarios. And so, for example, with a, a girl who was newly diagnosed and he was in respiratory distress, of course, we couldn't start AML therapy because that would have been too dangerous. So we tried to uh, stabilize the disease until she mm-hmm. got better. For patients who were toward the end of therapy, that it was safer to hold the therapy, and uh, if they were positive or and if they had some symptoms, then we held the therapy, and like Jennifer said, we canceled procedures. Now, there were children who were pretty early on therapy, uh, second month of therapy, for whom a delay may be dangerous. And there we had to go a little bit by what the clinical scenario said. So we tried to maybe delay a little bit, but as little as uh, as possible. Uh, and then obviously as time went by and we realized that we were more comfortable and realized a little bit uh, better what uh, really the, the clinical scenario was in this uh, patient population, then the delays became uh, less and less. And people became more comfortable in treating even if it was a positive test, but the patient was asymptomatic or really, really mild symptoms. You have to say it has been, I think for all of us, uh, pediatrics, adults, every field of medicine, big evolution in a very short time, which because of the dissemination of knowledge. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the presentation in children of a Kawasaki-like disease. 
So if you would, how do children present with that? And are you hearing about that in children with the blood cancers? Yeah, so I guess I can, and we may have the channels of information are kind of interesting. And I do think that your point about have you heard about it is kind of, um, I think a lot of this and what we understand is sort of word of mouth. And we've really been trying to kind of understand amongst our colleagues what is happening so, you know, essentially what they're calling the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children is really kind of this cascade where all of their inflammatory markers are um, elevated. The heart really seems to be an organ that is primarily affected, where these children really are requiring a lot of pressors. We actually at Cornell have not seen that in the general population because our PICU actually, because of the covid pandemic was closed to make room for adult patients and patients were ultimately treated are being treated currently at another hospital. I have only heard of one instance and actually only within the last week of a child with cancer, not a hematologic malignancy, who also appeared to have the multi-system inflammatory um, syndrome. So I would say, because I have been sort of involved in trying to understand what the numbers look like across the country, my sense is that an estimate is probably that there's only between maybe two and 300, and that may actually be a little on the high side, of children with cancer who also have positive results, although I think, you know, the testing patterns are changing, and so that maybe will look a little bit differently. I mean, I'll let Maria Louisa talk about Memorial Sloan Kettering has really done, you know, a lot of work just testing to try to understand what the incidence of disease is. But to date, we have not seen a lot of that syndrome. And again, the one child that I've heard about did not have a hematologic malignancy. For us, there was one uh, boy, a teenager, who was uh, a non-logical lymphoma who had tested positive and really minimal symptoms, just a little bit of cough, uh, was swabbed and it was, uh, it was positive. So he continued to receive chemotherapy. There was minimal delay. And then uh, at the time of neutropenia, he actually presented, he was admitted for fever neutropenia and he became uh, a potential needed the, the ICU. There was a moment where there was a concern there that you could be developing uh, the multi-system um, inflammatory um, syndrome. However, it was never really confirmed uh, or not everyone was really so convinced that that was what is going on because clearly, um, unfortunately, we see septic shock uh, uh, not unfrequently during the period of neutropenia. So other than that, we really uh, haven't had anyone uh, developing the syndrome uh, in hematology malignancies, but also in, in same thing in the solid tumor. I was aware of a child at another institution who seemed to develop that and he had more typical features like the cracking of the lip, edema of the um, fingers, and uh, that child, for example, re uh, received an IVIG. And I think he's been doing that, uh, pretty well. But overall, like Jennifer said, the incidence of uh, patients with COVID-19 has been quite low. And thankfully, among them, uh, the incidence of patients being um, becoming sick has been, uh, has been low. I think part of it is also we're talking about a population um, that are extremely, extremely careful with protecting themselves. And so I don't think we even really need to uh, stress on them the importance of, uh, you know, distancing and isolation because it's part of their life in a sense since their child was was diagnosed. So adding a little bit, an extra layer for them, I didn't think it was that difficult. So I, I don't know if in part uh, that also played in um, being able to maintain the incidence relatively low.
But our, the vast majority of all the children that were admitted with the syndrome in the New York City ICU, at least, I don't recall, unless Jennifer, you think differently, I don't recall really children with uh, cancer or hematological malignancies specifically having developed it. One of the ways that I actually think that the pandemic itself has had serious implications in the pediatric oncology community is twofold. One is that patients are, in fact, less willing, people are less willing to come to the hospitals, and I think that uh, that really impacts the numbers of what we're seeing in terms of new diagnoses and then subsequently starting to see increases. And so I think that actually, in a way, one of the ways the pandemic has impacted, and we see this has been described in lots of other diseases, is people being more willing to sit stuff out at home that they, than they otherwise would be. And then the other issue that I think happens to some degree, and, and we just had a situation that consistent with this, is, is sort of blaming COVID for symptoms that are not necessarily COVID. And I think that's another area where we're trying to really tease out what these clinical presentations look like. So we had a patient who actually um, ultimately turned out to have Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin lymphoma, but she also happened to have been COVID-19 positive and had elevated inflammatory markers. And so, you know, it really took sort of thinking through, well, how do you interpret that? And I would say, you know, overall, in a non-pandemic setting, the time frame for workup probably would have been somewhat different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I've seen this now on the adult side, too. And, and in fact, in patients with lymphoma, where the symptoms were not passed off, but were disconnected from the diagnosis because of the concern about COVID. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about treatment and about clinical trials. Anything being done at your institutions or elsewhere that you know of in terms of treating COVID-19 uh, in children with blood cancers? Not to my knowledge. Okay. So for us, that's the other interesting uh, thing that has evolved uh, of, over time, uh, and I think in part reflecting uh, sort of the anxiety in the beginning uh, uh, and not knowing exactly how to, what to do and how to manage and what to expect in these patients. And so, for example, so the two patients were sick with uh, uh, respiratory distress. Uh, both of them actually received uh, um, hydroxychloroquine, um, and one of them in combination with uh, azithromycin. Over time, this is disappeared. And so they, for example, right now we are not, infectious disease is not recommending treatment with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And so the adults went through the same process where initially they were recommending therapy in specific situation and then we moved to only patients would have access to the medication only through a clinical trial so that we at least would be able to, to study. But overall, that course of two months is changed significantly. And I wanted to ask you a last question on the psychosocial aspects of this disease. I mean, it's been, you know, obviously for our whole country, for all of us, you know, our lifestyles are changed. Uh, our view of our safety and, uh, and our children's safety has changed. How's this pandemic affected your patients and their families? And then I'm also going to ask about the healthcare professionals involved. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely there have been implications across the board. I think you know, in some institutions, people have been deployed. We did less of that here to, to do other kinds of work. I think for families, the need, you know, to, to need to come into the hospital, the, the worries about the health of their children, the implications that those worries have for who, you know, interacts with whom. I think that extraordinary work has really been done to make 
the patients feel uh, safe and healthcare providers feel safe in our clinical environments. But again, what sort of safety means has really played out in a backdrop of uncertainty. Um, I'd say overall, I do believe that we have generally done a good job in, in that way in terms of protecting safety in the numbers of patients that we're seeing who actually do turn out to be positive. But I mean, this is such a time of enormous stress for everyone, I, but I think it's also been a time where, you know, people have really been able to come together and, and work together, and I think our patients do understand and see the goals that everyone has for protecting them, but there is no doubt <laughs> that this has certainly affected people's stress and ways of functioning. For us, I think it's everywhere actually the same thing. The families were certainly really, really stressed about the possibility of exposing their child. And so there was a reluctance to come to, to the hospital and also a concern about actually continuing um, chemotherapy in some cases. I think so what helped was that the fact that clearly they saw the healthcare professionals very, very involved with this and uh, at the same, and very worried. And what helped was also that there was a very constant and very clear communications because uh, things changed for us also. Remember, we went for a time where we had to use PPE only if uh, with patients who had symptoms to a time, you know, a month later, everyone had to, had a, uh, to have a mask. So they kind of, uh, uh, I feel almost like healthcare professional and families a little bit went through the same process. Mm-hmm. And probably because they saw our concern also, and they also saw that we really made efforts to try to help them uh, come to them in ways that uh, was protecting for them and their family by implementing uh, uh, specific schedules in the clinic, by using a regional site, by using telemedicine, everything we could to have uh, an eye on them, uh, but trying to safely spare their back and forth to the clinic. And so little by little, then also people become used to this. Um, and now I think there's certainly much higher level of comfort. And the same thing was for the healthcare professional. The first couple of weeks, um, certainly where, you know, physicians and nurses were, specifically then, particularly the nurses, were very worried. Because it also takes time to people to get used to the change of what you have to use, how you enter a room, what kind of approach. Remember to use a phone when you have to talk and not go to the room. And it's significant change. And also, testing was starting, and you start hearing about your colleagues and the nurses you were with the day before being positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, little by little, you gain more information. You actually see what happens. I think actually it was beneficial for people, for the physician to come to clinic rather than staying at home for days and days and actually see how, how the clinic works and how the floor still run, runs uh, and learning just what you have to do to kind of protect yourself and your patient. And uh, little by little, I think people adjust. And I think that. That's what's going to happen also in the months to come. I wanted to ask, what are the implications looking forward in terms of patients and their families and caregivers from what we've learned and from what we will continue to learn? What are some of the messages you would share with colleagues? I mean, I think the biggest message that I have is that it's one of the most important things I think that we need to do is really share our experiences and the information that we have because Overall, the numbers of patients who actually develop COVID-19 are small, but everybody is really being involved by the pandemic. So we've created a national registry that's coordinated out of the University of Alabama called the POC Report, where we are trying to identify all cases of patients with cancer who have had positive coronavirus tests. 
And in New York, there are we also have efforts that are going underway across a multitude of institutions together to tr really try to understand what the pandemic means for patients psychosocially. So, you know, there may be things we're seeing now, but what are the implications really down the road? What does the financial toxicity look like in these patients? What is the issues related to treatment and outcomes? And so I think pediatric oncology in general is a very uh, collegial field where we really do work together to try to understand our patient population. And I think that this is a time where that spirit and that sharing of information is just critical to doing the best we can for our patients. Yeah, for me, COVID-19 is something we're going to have to deal with for a while uh, until really there is, uh, not only there is a vaccine, but until really we have uh, uh, evidence and people are comfortable with the fact that the vaccine is protective. So I think this, uh, the changes that we have uh, uh, done in clinical practice will uh, stay with us for quite some time. And even frequently, I think or I get worried that maybe we haven't seen everything of COVID-19. And certainly that happened to me once the, the Casa-like-like uh, presentation came. Uh, um, I remember being worried and saying, oh, is this, is this now what's going to, to be? It seemed like it was going to be mild. And now, and it was just because uh, there is simply a delay and the children will be affected later. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully nothing. But the, the, I think the other important message is that having a disease like this, a leukemia or a lymphoma, it is still a life-threatening uh, disease. And uh, and so, yes, there is COVID, but the full attention needs to be still on the correct management on uh, of the disease. And so uh, a sort of workup, even if that means some potential risk in some situation, I think in certain cases a sort of workup needs to be done. And that changes or delays, modification of therapy really needs to be very, very thoroughly sought because the implication of uh, um, modification or, or delaying chemotherapy could be significant for these children. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. This is Dr. Ken Miller. Today we were joined by Dr. Jennifer Levine, who's an associate professor of clinical pediatrics at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York, and Dr. Maria Luisa Sulis, who is a physician attending and member at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So uh, Jennifer and Mary Luisa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative and timely podcast. For more information on how LLS is supporting pediatric and adult blood cancer patients during the COVID-19 pandemic, or for any questions and to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, Continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org CE. And again, thank you for joining us for this important conversation. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. <laughs>